when we're here in this home stretch. Right before the chapter five, or period five rather, test. Welcome back to Pushing VA. Skip the disclaimer because Maureen does approve of this, even if she doesn't know of it yet. This is no ordinary Pushing the A podcast. This is your period five review. I'm sitting here with 33 flashcards. I'm going to try and get through them in 20 minutes. Max, it's definitely not going to happen, but we can dream, can't we? Let's give it a shot. All right. So, first of all, starting the timer in three, two, one, radical abolitionism. So the year is 1831, William Lloyd Garrison starts an anti-slavery newspaper called The Liberator. In 1833, the American Anti-Slavery Society is established. Also, a war of words between the North and South begins. The South asks, uh, the South decides to burn a bunch of post offices for spreading abolitionist uh, paraphernalia. David Walker writes Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World in 1829, which is essentially a call on black people to rise up. Um, and Surgeoner Truth, Frederick Douglass, Martin Delaney, other important people to know. Frederick Douglass speaks in 1841, uh, lectures, uses politics more wisely compared to Garrison, who just likes to stir up tensions. The parties of abolition, the Liberty Party, the Free Soil Party, and the Republican Party. Support for the war. It's going up. The South flashing back. Uh, I already covered this, but basically abolitionists are the devils and let's burn the post office. Also, uh, post offices, you cannot distribute any abolitionist flyers. Uh, chapter 17, the year is 1841. The Whigs are sick and tired of being sick and tired and decide to get jobs. So they send in William Henry Harrison to be a puppet for Webster and Clay. Four weeks later, he dies. John Tyler takes over uh, and he basically disowns the Whigs. The Whigs basically disown him. We move on. Moving on to the election of 1844, Texas is on its own. It's a big problem. James Polk defeats Henry Clay. Uh, Tyler, at that moment, says this is a mandate for Texas and goes out and brings it into the Union. Uh, the Mexicans, needless to say, are pissed. The U.S. says, too bad. Also happening, uh, from the Rockies to the Pacific, uh, the British and the Russians and the Spanish and the Americans are all claiming it. Eventually it comes down to the British and the Americans are joint occupying it for a while. It's Oregon fever and then in 1846, uh, they basically decide that the 49th parallel is going to be the dividing line. The 49th parallel all the way to the ocean, which means the British get Vancouver Island and the Americans get today what is known as the Oregon Territory. Uh, more manifesting destiny. Uh, da, 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 da. They're taught, the idea of Manifest Destiny is established, which is basically God has given us the West to own. We are destined to have a continental empire. James Polk loves this, and he wins the party based on the Liberty Party's uh, siphoning away votes. Tyler uses that to go get Texas. A little more on Polk. Polk comes in with a four-point program. He wants to lower the tariffs. He wants an independent treasury, and he wants to get California and deal with Oregon. The Walker tariff lowers tariffs to 25%, leading to a boon afterwards. Treasury is made re-independent in 1846 in Oregon. No one's really caring about that issue, but they get them to agree on the 49th parallel anyways, not the 46th and 49th anyways. The British agree, the Senate agrees. Uh, they don't want to fight a useless war. The old Northwest is no longer the Northwest. Thusly, they are unhappy. In Mexico, James Polk really wants California, more specifically San Francisco. There are fewer than a thousand Americans in that area, 75,000 Indians. Uh, American-Mexican relations sucks, so the Americans can't really go out and get California for themselves. Also, Mexico owes the U.S. a lot of money, like $3 million a lot back when $3 million was $3 million. 
Um, additionally, Texas is claiming some land near the Rio Grande. James Polk agrees with him, uh, but there's this no man's land between the old border and the Rio Grande. However, what Polk is most worried about is a British baby buying California off the Mexicans, so he sends John Slidell uh, to the Mexicans who say, uh, he says, $25 million for California, deal or no deal. The Mexicans say, new phone, who's to divvy, who gains is this. So, Polk decides in January of 1846 that he's going to send Zachary Taylor and four others to, from Nueces, the Texan border, to the Rio Grande, and he tells Congress on May 4th that it's time to declare war because he wouldn't let our diplomat in and you wouldn't pay back the loans that you owe me. Uh, to which the Mexicans to which the Mexicans uh, then decide to go uh, kill a bunch of men in no man's land, which leads to war. Uh, suddenly everyone's in on this war, including the Whigs. Polk may have been to the truth. Abraham Lincoln's a congressman. He asks in the spot resolutions for the exact spot where these people died. Uh, ultimately, Polk calculated that California was vital to the Union. Britain couldn't have it. Definitely provoked the war, though. Okay, we're in this war with the Mexican-American, the Mexicos, uh, the Mexicos. Polk wants a limited war. Santa Ana, who is uh, fleed, says, get me back in and I will flip. Then he triple crosses them and works for Mexico. The United States launches some other opposition attacks. Stephen W. Carney sends 1.7 men, 1.7 thousand men on the Santa Fe Trail. John C. Fremont uh, and a bunch of well-armed explorers overthrow Mexican rule in California with some Navy help. And they start the California Bear Republic, the Bear Flag Republic. Zachary Taylor goes to the Rio Grande. Uh, gets a bunch of wins, um, and then at Buena Vista, they hold off 25,000 Mexicans with 5,000 Americans. Uh, more on this lovely war. Uh, ben Winfield, uh, Scott, General Winfield Scott, not Ben, goes to Mexico with a few troops, and they're very badly trained and in bad conditions, and they win in Mexico City in September 1847. Anyways, Polk says it's time for a treaty. He sends Trist, who accidentally gives Santa Ana another $10,000, um, and so uh, Polk calls him and says, what are you doing? Come back. Uh, Trish sends him 64 pages on why he's not coming back. So he starts and gets down and sits down to negotiate. 15 minutes left. Oh, shoot, I never... When I say 15 minutes left, I mean 13 minutes left. Continuing. Um... So Trist uh, is in Mexico, and he signs the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, where the United States gets Texas, uh, plus uh, the land from Oregon and west to the ocean. Um, and that includes California for about $15 million, which is about half of Mexico's landmass. This really screws over the citizens of Mexico. In the Senate, conscious Whigs, uh, conscience Whigs are really hating the war and they're anti-slavery, uh, so they're ready to end it and stop sending supplies, and so they got to get this done quickly. Expansionists though, are like, let's get all of Mexico. John C. Calhoun says, relax, uh, 58 to 14 is the final rate in the Senate of those who approve to those who don't. Polk sends Mexico $18 million more for their troubles. Zack attack. The Whigs nominate Zachary Taylor in the next election. Uh, Clay Webster have too many enemies. It's not an issues campaign. It's a virtue campaign. He is a slaveholder. Abolitionists and industrialists, other people that are annoyed about Oregon, create the pro-Wilmot proviso. The Wilmot proviso is this thing that says there will be no soil. There will be no slavery in the new soil from these new treaties. Uh, for instance, a pro-Wilmot proviso. It's the Free Soil Party. Martin Van Buren heads it. Uh, on the basis that slavery is bad for white people. 
Um, which they are basically saying free land can lead to upward mobility, but if a bunch of slaves take this land, or if a bunch of slave owners take this land, then it will be huge and they won't be able to buy. The two major candidates turn it into a personality fight. Taylor wins. Um, it's unclear who the other side dominates. Just know that Taylor wins in the election of 1848. So they nominate someone. Uh, Taylor's not a politician. Also, they find gold at Sutter's Mill in California. Uh, and tens of thousands of people head to the California uh, it's lawless, it's in disarray. Then California applies for slave statehood without slavery. Zachary Taylor's feeling it. Uh, the South is not feeling it because it puts their balance of power into imbalance. Suddenly there will be more free states than slave states. Suddenly the Senate can start legislating on slavery. Oh, no, no. So in 1850, California wants in. Uh, there's some mumblings of secession in the South. And so everyone gets together in Congress. Uh, the new and the old in Washington uh, Henry Clay speaks first. He talks about compromise. Stephen Douglas from Illinois, basically mini him, backs him up. He says, it's time to make concessions for the sake of the Union. The North will have to give up a stronger fugitive slave law in exchange for a Union. John C. Calhoun is 68 and basically says, what about South? What about the rights of the South? And if we have this discussion, it's inevitably going to end up in disunion. He wasn't wrong. Daniel Webster then gives the 7th of March speech, which is three hours, and he backs up Clay. Compromise, let's get a new fugitive slave law. Uh, but you can't have new territories with slavery just from the sake of the climate says that they will not be useful. He was wrong, but people thought he was right at the time. Ten minutes left. Uh, the Young Guard in the North is pissed because they've only ever known a union, so they're very radical. Uh, William Henry Seward, or W.H. Seward, leads that new guard. He's like, this is an abolition. This is this is defaming God. What the heck? Uh, Zachary Taylor says he will veto all these compromises, and he would be happy to send an army against the Texas armies that are going a little bit AWOL and trying to take more land that isn't necessarily theirs. Then Zachary Taylor dies in 1850, Miller Fillmore takes over, and he signs this compromise, uh, new land in exchange, new states in exchange for a uh, stronger future of slave law. Uh, Clay and Webster go on a speaking tour. The South, the South, uh, the more extreme sides of it are pissed, but the economy's good. Um, when secession talk goes down. It's the second era of good feelings. The issue of slavery, it's gone. Secession calls are over. End of a push. Um, in the Compromise of 1850, the North got a better deal. They got California, New Mexico, and Utah, who say they can do slavery, but they won't because of the quality of the land. Uh, the South says, okay, let's look elsewhere. Maybe we should look in the Caribbean or Latin America to find other states that, other new states that will have slavery to keep it balanced. Fugitive Slave Law in 1850 really pisses off the North. Basically, they have to go capture runaway slaves at the request of the federal government, and judges are bribed to send them back to the South. Uh, this turns conservative Whigs into staunch abolitionists. The Underground Railroad really steps up its activity. Massachusetts won't enforce it. Other states say that you cannot use our jails. Um, so we're in this period where the South is looking for other places. They look in Latin America. They try and start a uh, revolution in Nicaragua. It fails because of a Nicaraguan coalition of Central American states that does that. Uh, then they look to Cuba. Um, there are a lot of people that are already enslaved in Cuba. It could be multiple states. Polk long ago had offered $100 million for it. Spanish said, hell no. So two expeditions have been sent to take Cuba. Both had failed. It's called filibustering. A lot of important Southerners die. Uh, and Cuba, on a technicality, seizes United States black warriors on the beach. So Pierce uh, decides that he's going to tell the diplomats in Spain and Britain and France to 
draw up a potential idea, buy Cuba for $100 million or $120 million. This is the Austin Manifesto. And if they say no, then we go to war and get it because Europe's busy fighting the Crimean War. Then it leaks, the North is angry, and that is that for any hope of a Cuban-American state. Uh, Japan, why not? Uh, Miller Fillmore sends a bunch of ships to Japan, commanded by Matthew Perry, who knows his stuff. He knows she, he negotiates his way ashore, comes back a year later with crazy gifts, and they sign the Treaty of Kana, Kanagawa in March 1854. Uh, the United States and Japan now have foreign relations. This will be important later, but probably not on the test. Stephen Douglas is invested in Chicago. Um, actually, I'm skipping. I'm skipping over myself. So the United States has this new uh, treaty in... Uh, Kansas and Oregon and California, and now they need to figure out how to get there. Not Kansas, California. The railroad is the only option, uh, and the best route for it is probably going to be a route through the southwest towards Los Angeles. The best route, though, is south of the American border, so the Secretary of War, Jefferson Davis, sends James Gasden to Mexico, who gives Santa Ana $10 million for basically Tucson desert area. Uh, it's the Gasden purchase in 1853. The Senate approves it. Uh, the South is like, hell yeah, we're going to get the railroad, we're going to have an economic boom, this is great. Because um, the North, to run a railroad, would have to run it through Nebraska. Uh, so then they say, okay, let's get Nebraska, even though it's unorganized. So Stephen Douglas, who's a mess in Chicago, and wants that's the eastern terminus of the railroad, uh, six minutes, um, says, okay, let's divide Nebraska into two parts, uh, Kansas and Nebraska, and they'll have popular sovereignty, meaning they vote on whether or not they have slavery. Kansas, assuming, because it's more south, will be a slave state. Nebraska will be free. The only issue is the Missouri Compromise. So then Douglas goes and debates and repeals the Missouri Compromise. The North can't believe it. It was an institution. It was important to them. So suddenly they're not willing to compromise on anything anymore. The Democrats split a little bit on this. In 1854, though, it passes anyway. No one knows what Douglas was thinking. I want to make that very clear. Okay, chapter 19. Uh, in 1852, Harriet Beecher publishes Uncle Tom's Cabin as a reaction to the slave trade and slave auctions, splitting up families. Henton R. Helper in 1857 writes the impending crisis of the South in 1857. He's a poor white, hates slaves and slavery, but says that poor whites are being hurt the most. Uh, millions see Uncle Tom's Cabin, most importantly in Europe, where they then begin to disapprove of any potential intervening on behalf of the Confederacy. A lot of young people read it. Uh, for the impending crisis of the South in 57, the poor whites don't care, but the rich whites do, and the Republicans also pass it out as campaign literature. In Kansas, um, a bunch of people have come in that want Kansas to be free and are abolitionists, uh, and then a bunch of people, a bunch of people are also coming in on these uh, votes, on on these votes for the government. Uh, the Lecompton Constitution is the fight for, or well, for the first election is. The border ruffians are coming in. These are people that are from the South and want slavery in Kansas as a matter of principle, even especially now that a bunch of free soilers have moved into Kansas. So they win. The real government is set up in Shawnee something, Shawnee Mission. Uh, the non, the, hey, this wasn't legit government was set up in Topeka. The Lecompton Constitution, uh, which is basically a constitution that they cannot decide if it passes or doesn't pass, but instead will pass with or without slavery, but there's going to be slavery in it on a loophole anyways, um, comes to a vote. The Free Soilers abandon the polls for obvious reasons. Uh, it passes through 
This leads to this basically Kansas Civil War called Bleeding Kansas. Uh, John Brown comes in from Ohio, leads a bunch of men to Potawatomi Creek, and kills five pro-slavery heads. This herds a free soil cause in 1856. It goes out into an all-out civil war, uh, merges with the real civil war later. Uh, in 1857, they apply for statehood with the Lecompton Constitution. Um, Buchanan, James Buchanan, has already taken over at this point. He's pro-Lecompton, but Douglas, maybe feeling bad about it, says, no, actually, we're going to have a popular vote on the Lecompton Constitution. It fails. Kansas remains a territory. Um, in the midst of this crisis, there's no way we're finishing this in 20 minutes. I'm so sorry. Charles Sumner, a senator from Massachusetts, uh, abolitionist and well-hated, uh, gives a speech about the crime against Kansas. He condemns slavery in South Carolina and insults his other senator, Andrew Butler, who is from South Carolina and a slave person. Um, the South Carolina congressman, Preston S. Brooks, is the cousin of Mr. Butler, and he beaks up Sumner with a cane and eventually kills him. Brooks resigns. He's reelected. Sumner is kind of reelected posthumously, I believe. Uh, the North and the South are both equally angry about this, as they should be, understandably. The year is 1856. The Democrats nominate James Buchanan. He does not have anything to do with Kansas, which is a plus. They, uh, the Republicans meet in Philadelphia. They nominate Captain John Fremont. The Republican Party has been established, by the way. Just so you know, it's free soil in the North only. Um, and they don't even touch this up. The Democrats are running on popular sovereignty. The Republicans are running on free soil. Uh, the Know-Nothings, uh, the American Party, are running on anti-foreignism. They nominate Millard Fillmore. They are the equivalent, I would say, of a Steve Bannon kind. They raise questions about Fremont being a Roman Catholic. Um, Buchanan loses the popular vote, wins the electoral vote, 174 to 114. Fillmore cuts into Fremont's vote with eight electoral votes. Um, there are a lot of doubts about Fremont's honesty, uh, moreover, the South is saying we secede, and it's in the North's best interests to wait. Fremont was also just not the right Republican for the time, and there's just not enough war sentiment at the time for the country to go elect someone so radical. So, Dred Scott versus Stanford is a Supreme Court case in 1857. On the second day of the Buchanan administration, Dred Scott, a slave who was taken to the Illinois Wisconsin area, sued for his freedom based on that he was in a free state. The Supreme Court rules against him because slaves cannot sue. The Chief Justice, though, Robert Taney, who is from Maryland, says, you know what, we're going to go at all. We're going to take it really far because I want to shut down the slavery issue. Uh, slaves are slaves no matter where they go because they are property, uh, so they cannot sue and they cannot be taken by Congress. Uh, therefore... The Fifth Amendment protects them, so Congress can't take them. The Missouri Compromise, therefore, is unconstitutional from the start. Congress can't ban slaves even if the states want to. Um, the South is happy. Popular sovereignties are less happy. The Democrats split a little more over this. Uh, the northern states, basically, north and south says, what the hell, why are you doing this? John Brown, remember this guy? Uh, he goes and invades West Virginia, calling upon the slaves to rise. Uh, he creates a free black state by going to Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, stealing the federal arsenal. Uh, Robert E. Lee captures him. He is convicted of murder and treason. He becomes a martyr as he is super honorary in his final trial, runs up the steps to be killed. Very exciting. Uh, he becomes St. John Brown. The South is like, what the hell? How can we stay in the Union with a person like this? So as it turns out, guys, the Civil War cannot be accurately captured in 20 minutes. Electoral upheaval in the election of 1860, the Democrats have split into three-ish parts, I would say two. Uh, there's Breckinridge, there's Douglas, and then the Republicans are running Lincoln. Lincoln wins with 40%. He wasn't even on the ballot in the South. He's a minority president. It was two separate elections. Douglas comes in second in the popular vote, only gets 12 electoral votes. The North and Southern Dems, even if they combined their electoral votes, still would not have beaten Abraham Lincoln. South Carolina says, we are out of here. 
Uh, not many other states say that they're going to secede. Breckenridge is not a disunionist. Uh, the Supreme Court is still 5-4 in favor of, in favor of Southerners. Uh, the Republicans don't have any control of Congress, uh, and slavery has to change through the Constitution anyways. But South Carolina calls a convention in Charleston, and they all unanimously vote to secede. Exciting times. Following them are Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Texas, four more later. Lincoln still isn't president yet. Buchanan is too old and tired to do anything. Uh, and the Confederate States of America are created at Montgomery, Alabama. Jefferson Davis is the president. They have a lot of early momentum in the beginning. Oh, Let's see, how many did we have left? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Okay, probably needed to make it 25 minutes. It was a valiant try. Let's see if we can get the rest done in five minutes. Well, let's do 5.5 minute timer. Yeah, all right. Um, the Confederate States have this early momentum. Uh, the northern side, it best fits, it best benefits them to wait. Uh, because if they fight now, it's considered a war of aggression. Uh, plus, they need the army in the west. And also, they're still hoping maybe that they can have some reconciliation with the south. That doesn't happen. Um, this, the people who secede actually don't think the U.S. is going to be mine. They think they'll be well mine. They think they can be economically independent, um, and they can take on these traditional northern uh, industries of banking and shipping and Europe trade. Uh, they see some similarity to the American Revolution to it. Uh, so, at the in the war, the North is enjoying this crazy prosperity. Uh, they have. Um, New, they had a new tariff, which allows for uh, new factories, high prices help business, machines are saving labor, uh, which of course then leads to the inevitable extravagant profit-driven uh, millionaire class. Uh, let's see, clothing customization ends, farm boys are fighting and making food, petroleum is found in Pennsylvania, uh, the 59ers, in 1862 the Homestead Act is passed. Only the maritime industry really suffers, and also women are taking over men's jobs, which is something we'll see time and time again as America goes to war. Um, foreign flare-ups during the war, Britain is letting uh, people in its country produce ships for the Confederates, so the Laird Rams are two Confederate warships built in Britain that are dangerous to the U.S. They would have taken U.S. ships. The U.S. would have gone for Canada, suddenly we have a British-American war. London buys the ships and pays the U.S. some money for any previous damages. Uh, sometimes the South is going to, Southerners are trying to go through Canada to invade the U.S. The Irish stopped that from happening. On that note, there's also the Alabama incident, I believe, in which, yeah, I think the Alabama incident in which, uh, or the Trent Affair, rather, in which uh, the Americans uh, capture a, Confederate, a British ship with two Confederate diplomats on it and they take him in. Communications are too slow. For anything to happen, the war does. There's no American-British war in this time, nor will there ever be again, as far as we know. Um, in Fort Sumter, uh, this is at the beginning of the war, back to 1861. The federal forts uh, in the south. There are some federal forts in the south. Uh, the Southerners are taking the arsenals and the mints, and there are only two left. Fort Sumter is the more important. Uh, the provisions for that fort run out in April. Reinforcements would cause a fight because Fort Sumter blocks the Charleston Harbor. However, Lincoln decides it's in his best interest to protect federal land. Lincoln, who has said this, had this uh, inaugural address that's not about slavery, more about union and about how it makes sense for the two sides to remain together. 
Um, Abraham Lincoln's own provisions with troops. The South says uh, this is actually an act of war. The Union sends her navy. The South says fire the cannons. Uh, now the North is into the war. Uh, before they were like that, ah, you can go go peacefully, and now they are all out war. April 8th, 75,000 men are called to serve in the Union's new army. First real battle of the war. Uh, Lincoln thinks this is going to be a 90-day thing. He says, on to Richmond. 30,000 men are drilling near Washington. They're not nearly prepared. He tells McClellan to go to Bull Run, which is near Manassas Junction, and then you'll get Richmond from there. Stonewall Jackson on July 21st, 1861, prevents that from happening. Confederate reinforcements come. The Union flees. They have a nice little picnic on the field. Uh, Southern confidence goes way up. People desert. This war is over. The North is like, okay, this is going to take a while. Moving way ahead to Antietam, uh, Lee is moving north. He encounters John Pope, who is running the Union in the Second Battle of Bull Run. Lee attacks, wins. Now time to go to Maryland. Um, and all converges on Antietam Creek. Moreover, uh, abolitionists are antsy and hoping that Lincoln will say something. Lincoln, though, needs a win before he makes any major moves regarding slavery, so he doesn't look desperate. Uh, McClellan takes back over after being taken out of charge. They stumble upon the plans and... They stumble upon the plans. Uh, Lee is stopped at a draw. Um, there is a lot of blood. Lee goes back south. McClellan loses charge because he refuses to chase after Lee. Uh, if the South had won, it would have been a huge confidence boost for Jefferson Davis. The South could have won. The British and the French would have stepped in to be diplomatic. The North would have got them angry about it. Uh, then the British and the French are on Richmond's side. Instead, excuse me, with Lincoln's win, um, he's able to issue the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing all slaves from the South down in September 1862, taking effect uh, in March 18, er, January 1863. 53 seconds. No way we're getting through this. Uh, the Emancipation Proclamation frees all the slaves Lincoln cannot free, but basically it's we're gonna, wherever we come through in the South, we're not going to free those slaves uh, with that uh, thing, with blah, blah, blah. Um, the North is basically running on a strategy of we're going to get the Mississippi River to cut the Confederacy in half. We're going to go south and free the slaves to undermine their economy. We're going to blockade the living daylights out of those places, and we're going to fight until they are absolutely demolished. That is their strategy at the moment. Uh, it's a morally important document, but very boring in terms of terminology. Uh, the North now is a moral high ground. They eventually end slavery with the 13th Amendment everywhere. Um, and it turns the war into a fight about slavery. Um, some people like it, others say it didn't go too far. Uh, people who had volunteered only for the sake of union and not slavery start to desert. The timer just went off again. I'm going to just give up on ever timing it and just finish these as quickly as I can. Um, a wave midterms occur. A wave midterm election occur. Um, what you need to know about this is that the... Union Party or what not here. Let's look it up. Uh, election of 1864. I'm sorry, Marine. I'm using the internet. Election of 1864. Uh, it was... No, what party was it? The National Union Party is the party that it was. Um, and there is a wave midterm elections, though, against the president. Uh, and Lincoln, the people are like, Lincoln isn't doing enough. Uh, rulers in Europe, though, don't really care about anything that's happening right now. The people that are like, hey, this is kind of cool. All right, flash forward to 1864. Post-Antietam, McClellan is replaced by Burnside, who leads a stupid attack on a Confederate stronghold. In Fredericksburg in 1862, Joseph Hooker takes over, um, gets commanded Chancellorville in May 1863, gets hit by a cannonball. Stonewall Jackson gets killed in friendly fire. George W. George G. Meade takes over. Uh, 
and Lee says, let's go north through Pennsylvania, and if we win, more people will want peace, and that will be that. So it all converges on Gettysburg, where Meade ends up taking a stand by complete coincidence. Uh, 92,000 Union men versus 76,000 Confederate men face off between July 1st and 3rd, 1863. Pinky it leaves the final charge for the Confederacy. That's the high point for the Confederacy because it's the farthest north they ever reached. Um, it's their last chance to ever win. Jefferson Davis's long game was we're going to send a peace delegation to Norfolk and it'll converge with the returning soldiers uh, on one of the Union strongholds in the south. Um, however, the soldiers are not victorious returning, so, and then Lincoln turns them away at the door. Anyways, the southern cause is doomed, uh, even more doomed in the election of 1864, which we'll get to later. Again, I'm, I guess I just wasted time talking about that. Uh, Lincoln gives the Gettysburg Address four score seven years ago, blah, 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 at the Gettysburg Cemetery. Uh, Grant goes, Ulysses S. Grant, this is someone you should know, uh, he is commanding in the West, he was a crappy West Point person before, now he's living in, and he's getting victories all over the West, uh, uh, da -da 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 -da. um, David Farragut, uh, takes New Orleans for the Americans, uh, or for the Union, uh, lay, Grant's laying siege to Eastern Tennessee, uh, liberating the area, uh, the North or the North has also captured two key points, basically allowing them for total access to the Mississippi River and basically cutting the Confederacy in half, not allowing uh, not allowing provisions to come in from Texas or Louisiana. Um, William Sherman takes uh, Atlanta in September 1864, burns in November, heads on a march towards Savannah. On the way, they destroy everything in their way, takes stuff, free slaves, Confederate supplies are down, Confederate morale is down, their desertions are up. It is a total war. It's a little extreme, but it saved lives in the end. Election of 1864. People stupidly don't like what they're seeing from Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln needs 100% Republican support to stop Copperheads, which are basically the peace Democrats who want to end the war and think it's stupid. Um, the, Dems, the Democrats nominate McClellan, who's running on the campaign of the war, is a complete failure. Uh, soldiers come home to vote and bond just enough. Lincoln and his new Union Party, running with Andrew Johnson, who is a Southern slaveholder and a war Democrat, uh, wins by just enough. The Confederate hopes are gone. They were hoping maybe a new Union president ends the war. Nope, not going to happen. We move on. The year is 1864. Grant takes over uh, from Meade's post because he says he will chase Lee uh, and go at both of the Confederate strongholds at once, The South, so the South can't help itself. Um... And then eventually we're going to move towards Richmond. Uh, Lee turns this into a trench war in 1864, um, which leads to a lot of suicide missions for Grant. Lee is losing men in proportion, though. Um, basically, you're sending two men to get rid of one. The battles are no longer in the open, so it's in the trench, so you can't go on the offensive. And now it's just the Union pushing and pushing and pushing and trying to move south. The Confederates come to D.C. and say, hey, you want to have a peace treaty? And Abraham Lincoln says, sure, I want things to go back to the way they were before the war, except without slavery. The South says, we're just going to wait until we lose honorably. Um, they hold on until the North captures Richmond in Marchish, April 1865. Uh, the trench war took a long time at App Appomattox Courthouse. Um, on April 9th, Lee and Grant meet. The Confederates are going to rejoin. They can keep their horses. It's the end of the war. And now the question is, how do we rejoin this union? Uh, the total, we lost about 600,000 men, a whole generation of fathers and children, but 
democracy was pushed to the brink and the northern economy left to its own devices proved that the northern economy works when left to its own devices. Lincoln sits down in Jefferson Davis's office and is like, thank God I live to see the end of this, which doesn't mean anything until like five days later when he goes to see a performance at Ford Cedar and then gets shot in the head by John Wilkes Booth. Uh, he dies a martyr. Andrew Johnson takes over. He is impeached for not being harsh enough on the South in Reconstruction. That is period five in some 30-odd minutes. Folks, that was a lot of talking I just did. Holy cow. I'm not going to do the, I think the schmoop thing or whatever it was was fun the first time. I think it will be boring for all of you the second time. You can, people said they skipped it, so I don't see any reason to do it. Um, I think that's it. So this has been period five on Pushing the A. Thank you so much for listening along. It's been a long ride. It'll continue on. We'll see you in 2018. This has been Pushing the A.